Welcome to My Ed Expert, specializing in what's possible in education. By merging research, practice, and passion, we provide insights from top educational thought leaders for right now implementation. Now, here's your host, author Susie Pepper Rollins. I am so glad you joined us today. I am super pumped about our guest today because I'm such a big advocate for station teaching. When station learning experiences are well-crafted, it is a marvelous thing to behold. Student autonomy, independent thinking, teamwork, collaboration, all the learning pieces that we really strive for seem to click together. So I wanted to talk to an expert today about station teaching, Dr. Katie McKnight. Hi, Dr. McKnight. Hello. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm Great. I'm so glad you're here. You are so Me accomplished. Too. Yay. Yeah. You're so you're so accomplished that I'm gonna have to just do three things about you, but I want people to know a little bit more about you because your your background is so big. Dr. McKnight, Katie, has authored over 16 books. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, that's crazy. Um, she has devoted really a big part of her life to promoting literacy strategies across content. She's an expert on literacy and learning centers or stations for bigger kids, which is a super cool area of expertise. So the first thing I want to talk to you about, Katie, is your work is so deep in literacy in general, just across content areas. Tell us a little bit more about your work, your background, and how you got so passionately involved in promoting great literacy techniques. Uh, that's a great question, and, and I'm just really excited to be here and share all of this good information today. Um, so, so briefly, you know, I started off as a Chicago public school teacher. I taught in the inner city in Chicago, English and social studies, and uh, I uh, taught you know, in the Chicago public schools for over 10 years. And of course, like many of you out there, you know, my classroom um, is probably not dissimilar from many of you where you have students' abilities that are all over the place, right? So um, as far as reading proficiency and and how kids are achieving. And so here I am teaching pretty cognitively, um, linguistically complex texts with kids who were substantially below level readers. And then I also had kids who were very high level readers. And this was back in the day when nobody really talked about differentiated instruction. And what I found was that if I could differentiate, of course, we didn't call it then, and had kids in smaller groups and uh, working with them in stations, that I found that it it allowed me uh, the time and the space to work with kids on smaller groups. And I was greatly inspired, too, by the uh, work at the time. It was Nancy Atwell, because we're talking, you know, the 1990s, and using reader workshop, writing workshop, and it just kind of evolved. And then um, when I earned my PhD in reading and literacy, it just became even more and more clear to me that, you know, when we get to the older students between fourth and 12th uh, grade, Dr. Willingham, who's a um, psychologist who specializes in reading comprehension, there's something that happens between um, kindergarten through third grade, it's really about learning how to read. And then from fourth through 12th grade, it's about reading for learning. And what happens, especially in our middle school and high school students, is they don't get enough time to read. They don't get the opportunities to actually, uh, actually read the text and work through text. 
And in all fairness, a lot of our teachers, you know, at those grade levels don't have a background in reading. And I say this all the time, and Kyleen Beers talks about the same thing uh, in her book, When Kids Can't Read. And uh, I was trained as an English and social studies teacher, you know, for high school. And I did not have a reading background. That reading background came when I was a, uh, a PhD candidate in that field. And what I've learned is how critical it is for kids to get the practice time, the strategies that they need for vocabulary vocabulary and comprehension. Because the bottom line is right now in the United States, according to NWEA data, over 60% of our kids are not proficient readers in grades four, eight, and 12. And that has to change because it's about opportunity. It's uh, uh, not just college and career readiness, but I would be so bold as to say it's really about uh, creating, um, uh, having our, our, our our students are going to be our caretakers of a democratic society. So in a less grandiose way, really the bottom line is this. These kids are going to be the ones who are taking care of me when I'm old. I want to make sure they're prepared for that. Um, so that might be selfish, you know, kind of, you know, self-interest. But that's what I'm passionate about. I, I really want teenagers in particular to find their voice and be able to articulate their voice in, in meaningful, influential, and inspiring ways. And, and that's what I've always been about since I was a young teacher at 21. So... You know what, though? That's heartbreaking what you're sharing with us. And I read something not long ago um, about this small percentage of students who ever read a book after they leave school and, and mm -hmm. even after college, you know. Um, so there's always been a balancing act of, of instilling a love for reading, too. And, and mm -hmm. one of my biggest things I'm always worried about is we, you know, we have our pacing guides and all that, but how to also get kids to love reading. One of the things, and you have such a big background, but I wanted to try to hone in on station teaching a little bit today. Because um, that's really one thing that I think, as you talk about grades 4, 12, that uh, teachers could really enjoy and really be wonderful for kids. Tell us a little bit, and you talk about literacy and learning centers for older kids, grades 4, 12. What are some of the advantages this approach can bring? Wow. Um, so let me just begin, to with whenever somebody says, wow, this really works, I get a little um, jittery about it, being an educator for over 30 years, because one thing that I know is that our work as educators is highly complex. And what happens with center teaching is that, you know, it's built on the foundation of gradual release or responsibilities. So we start with a mini lesson, and we're developing either skill or content knowledge. And then there's guided practice, where it might be two to three students working together, observing the teacher, um, and, and getting additional practice. And then we start moving into centers. And the centers, um, if you're familiar with models like Daily Five, you'll, you'll see some similarity, because it's ba based on a balanced literacy framework. And so there's always a teacher-led center, which is really critical because you have kids working at different levels, vocabulary, reading together, and then writer's craft. And then for the different content areas, I make additional suggestions. So because we're more content-focused in 4th through 12th grade. But the focus at each of the centers is on skill development and content knowledge development. And, and you know, teachers, high school teachers in particular, and this isn't a slam on high school teachers because remember, that was the well from which I sprang. Um, they're always reticent about it. And when they soon discover that they can cover more content and less time because the kids are actually doing the work rather than us doing it for them, then they see the magic of it. So what happens is that 
Each center has um, a clearly articulated um, task or focus, uh, and the students, depending on their age, are given an amount of time to work on that and collaborate with each other. And so, uh, so, so the, the the kids are getting additional practice time. They are actually integrating the literacy skills with content development. And and you know too, Susie. I mean, like content literacy is nothing new. It's been around for quite some time, but it's amazing to me in you know, the 30 years that I've been an educator, that that it's still something that vexes us, you know, especially in middle school and high school of how to really integrate it. But the focus in the center is on a skill to be developed or a specific chunk of content. And I think that focus is really magical. The other thing, too, is that it allows for formative assessment um, at a teacher-led center. I really promote skills-based or standards-based grading um, uh, and evaluation so, so kids really know how to grow rather than a traditional ABCDF model. And it's not because it's faddish. It, the bottom line is, is that in the schools that I collaborate with, I'm seeing double-digit growth on assessments like PARC, Smarter Balanced, NWEA, MAP testing. I'm seeing, you know, easily 17, 18, 20, 22 percent gains in one academic year in very high poverty contexts of over 70 percent um, poverty. I have kids telling me at the middle school and high school level that it was the first time they ever read a book. And, and a lot of it has to do with that social process of reading and being together and choice. Choice is huge. The idea of one novel, one class is an archaic one. So if I'm focusing, for example, on a short story unit and I want to do Edgar Allan Poe, the kids can read different Edgar Allan Poe stories. We don't have to read the whole one because the focus is on point of view. Uh, it's on um, the craft of developing a short story theme. And that's the focus of the work at centers, not the actual task of reading it and getting through it, but, but really focusing on, you know, things that promote inferencing, like point of view, discussing theme, discuss how language works. And, and it's quite magical. I've been in, in schools, Susie, where, you know, um, I, I've been in schools actually where they've been on state watch and uh, we get that kind of growth. That's amazing. I'm just inspired mm -hmm. hearing about, and I can visualize these stations as you're talking about them. And I'm, and I'm loving what you're talking about too, about the novel units. Maybe we need to rethink some of that because there's a value in wanting to share this experience with students. But, but boy, as someone who's taught reading, I, I, you know, three weeks into a novel, I don't know what else to do. You know, you, we, mm -hmm. we need some, maybe some alternatives to that to, to offer to teachers. I'm really interested in hearing more about that. Something that I've noticed, I want to get your opinion on this. When I'm working in buildings, and I heard what you were saying about having the teacher center, the teacher station, which is that wonderful time with this smaller group of kids, what guidelines can we offer educators for those other stations? Because I'll tell you, sometimes what I'll see is to get those that wonderful time with them. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what's happening out here. Should there be some feedback protocols in the other student-driven stations? What, what do you recommend for that? So it's so awesome that you brought up that question because I think that's the number one fear because folks will say, oh, no, Dr. McKnight, if I do this and I'm doing this at the teacher-led station, the rest of the room will go nuts. And, um, 
you know, very similar to the daily five gals of, you know, we don't want kids to practice undesirable habits, right? So we're also training them, even, even an 11th grader, we're training them how to work in this kind of environment, which incidentally, you know, when I taught at the university level, um, I used centers and uh, stations with PhD candidates, you know, and uh, it had helped to create focus. But getting back to what you're saying, if there's a clearly articulated focus at each center, and my number one piece of advice is you have got to write out the directions for that, for that station, for that center. Um, if you do not write out the directions, it is a recipe for chaos. Um, the one, when kids have a clearly articulated task at each center, each station, it creates an enormous amount of focus and concentration, particularly for our kids with special needs um, uh, and, and kids who are on the spectrum. And most of us as educators also work uh, in classrooms where we have inclusion. And so, you know, how, how do we, how do we do this? Right. Um, how do we manage that? And, and one way of doing that is that teacher led center, because you can bring kids in, um, uh, with groups as you need it. But, uh, as far as the other centers, you know, is there some chaos at the point at, at the beginning? Yeah, there is. Um, but once we we have really, uh, clearly articulated, um, uh, expectations, norms, and I don't like to call them rules, uh, that starts creating that shift, that paradigm shift. And it's really powerful practice. And, and if I could, you know, these are some of the things a, a teacher that I worked with in, um, uh, in um, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, she polled her students, her uh, fifth grade students, and she says, okay, so she, she was a veteran teacher, 30 years, she'd say, I, I was the teacher-directed queen, and now she's um, student-centered, uh, does stations all the time. And she co-presented with me at a national conference about this transition that she made. And she doubted me. She's like, I thought Dr. McKnight was nuts <laughs> when I, she first suggested this. But, you know, it's like, okay, I have to do this because it's a school directive. The kids say things like, I like working in centers because I always have support. I have support from either my peers or um, the teacher. Uh, they also report, too, that they like to have diminished homework. They see that they're not getting as much homework, quote-unquote busy work, where they have to answer questions at the end of the chapter. They like the fact that you can integrate technology at the different stations and centers. And one of the things that I always recommend is a makeup center, which is also a DI strategy. So once the kids have rotated through all the centers, the kids have an opportunity in their group um, to finish up any work that they didn't complete. I also use it as a formative assessment technique where I ask them to pull out your best work and pull out the work that challenged you the most. And then the next time we do centers, that's the first thing I talk about in the teacher-led center. And if I'm using skills-based or standards-based grading um, or proficiency scales, I can monitor their work right then and there. So I shouldn't be taking papers home to grade anymore on Saturday night. And the kids say that they really like the learning environment. And in many of the schools where I worked, one in particular, um, they were used to kids not working in class, not completing homework. And after we kind of got on a roll, after about five or six months, uh, we, had a we had to have a conversation about how to handle the paper load uh, in the classroom. But I also have lots of tips, um, Susie, on my YouTube channel, which is Katie McKnight Literacy. 
And I have like 20 teacher tips uh, where I interview teachers in the schools where I've worked about their little tips to make classroom management um, uh, uh, easier in, in center kind of work and station kind of work. And also an overview. You can also see what it's supposed to look like. And I also published... Um, uh, literacy and learning centers for the big kids, which is on Amazon. So, so there's lots of resources out there. And of course, I'm always eager to hear from folks too, to see how it's working in their classroom. Well, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm loving all these ideas. I know in the math classroom, I will typically, if there's a teacher station, uh, mm -hmm. recommend that, uh, the other stations have an answer key that's three feet away or flipped upside down so we can check our own work as we go to kind of get that practice set. The teacher doesn't have to grade everything. We can now look at our work too. I ran into a teacher once who had a wonderful idea that I have, I have so used. She had an ambassador in each station that would lay back a little bit and get everybody mm -hmm. started and move forward. So everybody kind of finds their sort of groove on this, you know, when you start with stations. And uh, and I think high school is the perfect time to do stations. They, they can move. And, you know, one of the great things, it goes with their attention span. You know, we get up and exactly. do something different, almost like resets the brain. Oh, something new. There's some pink paper over here, something different. You know, it, it's novel too. So you had already mentioned one of the things about instead of a novel unit, uh, maybe shorter passages. And, and one thing I'd like for you to talk about is what are some of the favorite station ideas you've, you have implemented that maybe you could share with our teachers? Yeah, sure. You know, like going back to the novel, for example, um, I, you know, I, I do recommend, you know, it, it, especially at this level, like once kids crack the code, it's about pages read. Um, the more they read, the better they get at their reading and comprehension. It's just the bottom line. And there's Gobs and gobs and gobs, and that's the technical term for it, of research that constantly supports that. The more pages kids read, the higher the achievement in reading, okay? So um, uh, so we want to encourage kids to just read more rather than us reading to them. And so some of the exemplary stations that I've seen uh, in the past is that uh, 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 one teacher, social studies teacher, had uh, they were working on primary source documents, and at the writing station, uh, the kids, they were studying the Bill of Rights, and the kids had to choose one of the amendments from the Bill of Rights, and their task was to create an evidence-based argumentation, uh, and the prompt was um, choose one of the amendments and uh, argue whether it should, it is still valid in 2018. And many of the kids focus on on quartering of soldiers, but then it gets into the whole conversation too about um, why it was written, why it was included at the time. So they're learning a lot about sourcing, contextualization of history, and uh, from a content standpoint, they're learning about the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, uh, and then from a skill level, they're learning how to analyze primary source documents, and that they are also developing evidence based argumentation. Um, um, and they talk about it at this writing station, and then they start drafting uh, their compositions as well. And the other thing that I liked about it, too, is that we talk about choice all the time and how incredibly motivating it is, um, especially for teenagers, to give them choice. And I think a lot of us have a misconception of what choice actually means. It doesn't mean that anything goes. So within this one station, 
the teacher had given the students a tremendous amount of choice within that task. So she she wanted the students to develop an evidence-based argumentation. She wanted the kids to study the Constitution, specifically the Bill of Rights, and to compare it to our, the way that we interpret rights in 2018. So looking, you know, at this document and the elasticity of the document, you know, so from a geeky historian point of view too. And, and I just thought it was just, it, there was just... Um, uh, just so much beauty in the simplicity yet complexity of that station. It seemed on the surface to be so simple, but yet it was filled with um, quite a bit of cognitive complexity going on there, which I really enjoyed watching the kids debate at that station and starting to graphically organize um, uh, their compositions. Well, that's wonderful. And I'm going, I want to uh, insert something here because I'm, I don't want to forget this. What is your website? Where do you, where could people contact you? Sure. You, uh, you can find me at KatherineMcKnight.com, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, McKnight.com. And all my digits and the way to contact me. But even more exciting is that I also have a website called EngagingLearners.com. And on it, you can subscribe to it for 14 days. And there's gobs and gobs and gobs of lessons, resources that you can use specifically for centers designed for grades 4 through 12. And then I also feature some of those, too, on, on your website, on MyEdExpert as well. Um, I have quite a few that are on there as well. One of my favorite ones, which sounds really geeky, is Snapchat, the main idea. So using social media, teaching kids how to discern main ideas and themes and text. I've seen that, and I love it, and I've shared it with other yeah. teachers when I'm out. So, guys, what we'll do is on the podcast. You just go to the notes and we'll have links to Katie's website. Uh, you can check out her resources on my ed expert. I know quite a pe- quite a few people have downloaded the Snapchat one. I think that's super cool. So I wanted to mention that. Uh, Katie, you talked a little bit about technology integra- integration. And of course, it's been a mission for quite a while. And it's in every district and, and stations. Boy, is that right up the alley for stations. Um, mm-hmm. What do you like seeing when you're in classrooms, maybe that, you know, to infuse some, some digital resources? Sure. Um, usually how, how we do it is that, um, uh, that what I usually do for technology is that, and, you know, I, I mean, as you know, too, it, it ranges tremendously. Like you can have, um, uh, a district where it's one to one, uh, or it's a classroom where there's maybe four desktop computers and that's it, or you bring in a cart. Now, here's the beauty with centers is that I can create a center where it's technology integration. So one of the things that we've done is uh, um, a wonderful site for teaching argumentation and writing is called Think Circa, C-E-R-C-A, that I recommend. Um, there's a wonderful free section on it. So one station could be working on Think Circa. That could be your writing station that day, but the kids are working on um, evidence-based argumentation on their computers in mathematics, as we know, just like in in uh, uh, with reading, the range is all over the place, right? So let's say that I'm a ninth grade algebra teacher, and I have kids who are still struggling with a particular um, skill or or such. I can have a technology um, uh, like working on math facts, or um, a lot of schools you buy platforms and things like that um, uh, to differentiate instruction. So if I have a student that needs to develop prerequisites for what we're actually working on at the time, they can. If I have a kid who's ready for calculus already, I can push them ahead. So it's great for that. Um, in science and social studies, Social studies in particular, I love to use old newsreel broadcasts. 
podcasts, things that they can look up at museums and start researching so they can do some digital researching. Same thing in science as well. Um, there's a bunch of really fabulous sites. One that comes to mind is in the teaching of physics. There's um, physics animations that kids can go online and see and and make uh, hypotheses and, and change different variables to create new outcomes. So those are just, it's just a sampling of things that we can use for technology. Kids could create their own podcast, just like we're doing here, another way to disseminate what they know and understand. Um, and as far as differentiating reading, uh, it, you can create PDF files in a Google document uh, or a Google folder or anywhere, and the kids have all of the reading that they would need, and they can choose what they're going to read. So as a social studies teacher, if we're looking at primary source documents that go with the Constitution, maybe I have five primary source documents, and I tell the kids, pick two out of this folder and do the following. Huge, huge. No, I love that. And it's just so mm -hmm. student driven. And, and I love some of your ideas about on, on text. That's a big question that comes up is how to differentiate text. Um, and sometimes I'll annotate text for students. Um, do you have any other ideas on that's probably the biggest question I get is, is how do we differentiate text for kids and stations? Do you have any other ideas on that, that you could share? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> um, I, I'm a big advocate of choice. And, you know, when I started off in my teaching career 30 years ago, I wasn't so much uh, in that category. But the research is very clear how critical choice is. So let's say that I'm a seventh grade teacher. And instead of doing, um, you know, everybody's going to read The Giver, which seems, you know, to be standard issue now in seventh grade, um, I uh, arrange my unit based on an essential question. And I say, what are the limits of friendship? And that is the essential question. That's what's going to drive it. It's not, here's the novel and how does an author create a novel? All right. It, it, essential questions have to be interesting and sexy for kids to be interested in it. So what are the limits of friendship? And so I give the kids a choice. Um, and this is how I differentiate text is that I um, offer them uh, several different books. One of them might be The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton, which is about on a seventh or eighth grade level. I might do Scorpions by Walter Dean Myers, which is more on a fourth to fifth grade text complexity. I could offer them uh, The Secret Life of Bees, which is more on an eighth, ninth grade level of text complexity, or Of Mice and Men, which again is on like about a ninth grade level of text complexity. And what we know from Richard Allington's work is that kids tend to choose what they can handle. They don't choose things that they don't think that they can handle. So what's really cool about it is, again, I am giving the students the um, advocacy to choose what they want to read. And when we do that, it's a tremendous motivator. And uh, Jeff Wilhelm and um, Michael Smith have written about the power of choice in the classroom. So is Smokey Daniels um, in his work. And I see it firsthand all the time. Kids who were never readers start reading. I'll see the lowest level readers in, in a middle school that all of a sudden they start reading. But kids will tend to pick what they can handle. And uh, so I like to do that. And I don't assign. I don't look at Lexile scores and say, you read this, you read that, you read this and group them. I let the kids choose. And by doing that, that's why I, I really think it has a huge impact. I, I know it does um, in seeing these achievement rates going through the roof, um, you know, 17, 18, 19, you know. And when I first started seeing the data 
I was very suspicious of it. I had to put my researcher hat on. I'm like, oh, this is this is pretty high for a high school. You usually don't see that. And looking to make sure that that data was valid and reliable, and it was. And and that's really the power um, of the practice. And and if you're interested, those case studies are on um, my YouTube channel, and you can take a look at like several uh, case studies where you know we put this in place and seeing the change uh, that that happens. It's it's really exciting. And but the bottom line is is it, that it has to do with instruction. You know, if we um, relied on just intervention programs, none of us would be having this conversation right now. And I've also presented the work too at National Title I. So if you go to my YouTube channel, you can see those presentations about the achievement and, and what we did in various districts and schools and, and got achievement up. Oh, I'm loving hearing all that. That's yeah. and I, it's just so fantastic to hear the kind of success you're having. I don't want to uh, leave out vocabulary development, particularly with station teaching. Um, what kinds of things? I'm, I'll do modeling clay, word arts, and sorts, and things like that. Do you typically include a station for vocabulary? Or you try to integrate that in your other stations. Talk to us a little bit about that. Always a vocabulary station. Okay. So, so I always recommend four foundational centers. So, um, uh, it's. Um, uh, teacher-led center, reading, writing, and vocabulary. Those are the four that I always recommend. So no matter if you teach health or if you teach math or you teach social studies or ELA, that you should always have those four. And math in particular, because I know you're a math goddess too, vocabulary is particularly tricky because it's usually not in context. So when a kid comes across a word problem or something where it says factor, and they don't know what the term factor means, that's it, they're done. But what we know too from um, work from like Janet Allen and others is that um, it's something, she showed a, a statistic where it was something like 80, 90% of classrooms um, still teach vocabulary with writing the words three to five times, writing down the definition and writing the sentence. <coughs> what we know from vocabulary research is that is the, the least effective way to teach vocabulary. It's kind of like round-robin reading. It needs to die a painful death. Right. And um, what we do know is that kids need to manipulate language within the context of their learning. So when we have a vocabulary station, I like to have the kids pick their own vocabulary. Um, and that, of course, is based on, on the work of a lot of vocabulary gurus and uh, using things like graphic organizers, foldables, concept sorts, um, uh, using imagery, visible learning, all of that is, is really what develops vocabulary. And um, I, in several of my books, I talk about it. And then in the Literacy and Learning Center book, too, um, I have, uh, uh, you know, I talk about each of the centers and what you can do. But a fabulous resource, it's King Solomon's Minds, is um, Vocab Gal. Uh, is fantastic. And she is on uh, Sadlier Publishing and she has her own blog there. And uh, she's very heavily involved too with NCTE and such. Um, Sarah Ressler Wright. And, and I uh, totally recommend that you go check out her stuff. She has so many wonderful activities that when I present in person, I always feature her work. And I said, here are like all the vocabulary stations and centers you will need for a year right here. 
and, and just go and get it. So really great. And I know you've got some awesome stuff too on my ed expert too for vocabulary. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to check those out. I love vocabulary. I think it's the best part of the day teaching vocabulary. I, lo- I love sorting and drawing and things like that. And I just, and we know that it takes a while to learn each word and you're dead completely right on math. The word is that you can't, you really use context clues to figure it out in math. So I always worry about students when they go to take their math tests that if they don't, they just literally just have to know that word cold. They're not going to get a lot of clues uh, around them on that word. So, um, I've learned so much from you today and I've got, I'm going to, I'm going to start talking a little bit about some of my takeaways. I'm going to try to narrow them in. And if you'll add some of yours, um, because I've, I've just gleaned so much from this. One thing is definitely those clear, clear tasks, the power of choice. And I really appreciate what you said about they're going to learn their content better, which is really what we need in 412. We've got, we've got so many standards and the pacing guides are quick. The content is so deep, but here's a different avenue. And boy, I, I just love what you said about they just got to read more pages. I mean, the round robin framework and things like that. Kids can't just read a paragraph and get to be stronger readers. Um, and then I'm just fascinated about this approach. Instead of a novel unit, some of the ideas here for breaking it up, giving more choice, letting them read, and how ch- students will pick what they can handle. Um, and that, boy, does that go with a lot of what we know about brain research, right? Mm-hmm. That if, that they're going to select these things. So I love the combination of those two. What are a couple that you would like to add, Katie? Um, as far as, um, uh, tricks of the trade, suggestions? Or just takeaways, like big ideas to send everybody in tomorrow. Um, well, you know, it, it, one of the things that I, I hear colleagues say all the time is that uh, when I go back and, and go back into the classroom and, and I'm co-teaching, I'll say, what, what surprised you the most about, about your students? What have you realized? And they, and they just look at me point blank and they said, I never realized how much my students can actually do. That's the oh, first wow. thing. And it's really... Um, once we kind of get over like the psychological, you know, um, hump, uh, that's what I hear like over 90% of the time is that they're, they're, and they'll say, I'm shocked at what my kids can actually do. And, uh, you know, the other thing too, it's that it's very threatening, um, to change practice. You know, when you've been doing things, there's a vulnerability to it. And when you're creating this shift with your kids and, and they're starting to, to, you know, gradually, um, focus on, uh, taking control of things, quote unquote, um, that's where the power is. And, and, and we want kids to be independent and strong learners and being able to collaborate with each other. And, uh, I personally, you know, being a veteran educator for 30 years, um, I'm always suspect, but the data and what, um, you know, the data that I'm collecting and the work that we're doing in schools, it's transforming it. And, and that is very exciting exciting to witness. The kids are happier. The teachers will tell me that they're happier, that they're not bringing as much work home to do. Well, that's amazing. I'm inspired by your work. I I never want to close a podcast without <laughs> thanking every educator. Katie and I want to thank you because mm-hmm. you're the most important thing in the world. Um, and you're creating possibilities for your kids every day in the classrooms for opening doors for your kids. Please join us next week and every week for interviews with some of our top ed thought leaders like Dr. Katie McKnight. Thank you so much for joining us. 
We are so glad you joined us on this episode of My Ed Expert. For more resources on the ever-evolving realm of education, head on over to myedexpert.com and get inspired by all of our author's work through downloads, strategies, and best practices. While you're there, hop on to get updates right to your inbox because you don't want to miss a thing right here on My Ed Expert. 